from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to read verses 17 through 44. You can find it here on the screen, or you can turn there in your Bible. If you would, stand with me as we read God's Word. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Martha, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, and saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Please lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. We pray, Father, that you would do a great work through the preaching of your word, that you would send your spirit to light a fire in our midst. We pray that you would give new life as you are pleased and that you would revive us and give us a clear understanding of who we are in relationship to you. So bless this time to bear fruit for your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
When you become a parent of multiple children, you pick up another gig as a part-time detective. (laughs) On any given day, you're going about your business and all of a sudden you hear a commotion coming from the other room. And you quickly make your way to the crime scene and you ask, what happened here? See, you begin with a question of initiation because you have to know who initiated it if you're going to make the right moves from here. If you're going to get to the bottom of this thing, if you're going to, if you're going to sort it out, you have to know who started it. And when I begin this stage in the investigation, do you know what I get back from every single child? He did it. She did it. You see, every single child is committed to pointing away from themselves and placing the responsibility on someone else. They won't take responsibility for it. They refuse to claim that they were the initiator. They claim with strong commitment that they had nothing to do with it. The consistent message is that there was somebody else who started this whole thing. Now, I'm looking at a room full of children And not a single person willing to take responsibility for what has happened. Now, last week we started our fall series. Our fall series called Saved. Where we are unpacking what it it means to be rescued by God. And not only what it means to be rescued by God, but how is it that the objective, accomplished work of Jesus actually becomes ours in real time. How does it become the possession of real people in real time? And when we begin to to work through our study on salvation, when we look at the individual Christian, we have to come with the question, what happened here? We must begin with a question of initiation because because we have to know who initiated salvation if we're going to make sense of this thing and know how to, to respond to it. And here's the deal. At this stage of our investigation, you know what we should get back from every Christian every time when the question of what happened here comes about? He did it. Every Christian should have this this firm commitment of pointing away from themselves to say he did it. Each one of us should refuse to take responsibility for what has happened in our rescue. We should claim it with strong commitment that we had nothing to do with it. Our consistent message that there is someone else who was responsible for this whole thing. When you walk into a healthy Christian church, you should see a room full of people, none of whom are willing to take responsibility for what has happened in salvation. That's what we're going to dig into today. How does the accomplished work of Jesus actually become yours? How did it become yours? So we're going to explore how God initiates our salvation in real time by calling us. And our two points that that we're we're going to consider as we look at calling is the situation and the summons. In order to get calling, you have to consider the situation... And the summons. Our first point, the situation. Now, by situation, I simply mean, what do we encounter in this text? 
What do we encounter as the situation or the, the issue in this text? And could, it, could you begin to, to consider the possibility that you're reading something about yourself in it? The story of the raising of Lazarus is a familiar story in Christian circles. But, but it's often true with things that are familiar, with passages are familiar. It's often true that, that things can hide in plain sight. That, that, that you can be familiar with a passage of scripture, but hold views that are, that are in conflict when it comes to how you think about your salvation. Where you land the responsibility. So we need to account for the obvious in this passage because it's critical for understanding the nature of our salvation and what was required for it. Now, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, check it. The obvious fact of the passage is that Lazarus is dead. When Jesus finds him, he is dead. Lazarus couldn't prepare himself. He couldn't reform himself. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't clean himself up and get his act together. He couldn't fight his way out or think his way out or will his way out. He didn't meet God halfway. Lazarus didn't find Jesus. Lazarus didn't invite Jesus into his heart. Lazarus was not looking at the man in the mirror asking him to change his way. Lazarus couldn't cooperate, initiate, or participate because dead people don't do that because dead people can't do that. It's the obvious truth of the text that is so often neglected. The text is even taking pains to emphasize it. You notice that it mentioned that he had been dead for four days. There's something going on here. It's getting at the finality the apparent finality and helplessness of the situation. It was commonly understood in Jewish culture that the spirit, after someone died, the spirit hovered around the grave trying to re-enter the body for three days. But on the fourth day, it was over. It's emphasizing the deadness of Lazarus. This is the obvious fact. This is the situation for Lazarus. But the reason why we must raise this obvious fact is because Scripture tells us that it's the situation for us too. It's the situation for us. Here's the paradigm. Jesus finds the dead man. That was true then and it's true now. To identify as Christian is to identify as a dead person who has been found. We will never appreciate what it means to be saved by God until we know that we were as dead as Lazarus. This is our biography. <laughs> but here's what's even more important. And this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Verse 39, check it. What's even more important is that Lazarus, he's identified as the dead man in verse 39. But before he's identified as the dead man, he is called the loved man at the beginning of the story. Verse 3 uh, is a call issued to Jesus, and, and the word is this, the one whom you love is sick. 
the one whom you love. And then the text emphasizes now Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Before his status as dead man is addressed, he had to be a loved man by Jesus. Love preceded his rise from the grave. Jesus loves the dead man. He finds the dead man. And then he calls the dead man. And that brings us to our second point, the summons. We've got the situation. We've got the situation. We see it in Lazarus. And what you need to do is you need to begin to see that as a reflection of yourself. In our death-dealing ways, our deadness shows up in all kinds of ways. It's all over the scriptures. This idea, death and resurrection. But let's look at the summons. Now look, the whole story is preparing and leading us to this climactic, unexpected moment. And this is the plain fact of the text. Jesus addresses a dead man and authoritatively calls him out of the grave. That's the plain statement of the text. This is the plain fact on the front of the text. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now check, you need to feel the shock of this passage. Don't just be shocked that God steps up to the grave of Lazarus. Be shocked that Jesus stepped up to your grave if you know him. The shock of it is to be felt as astonished as you would be if someone went over to the graveyard over here and started, and started to make moves to call people out. That's how astonished and surprised you should be at your redemption. You were as much as a goner. I was as much a goner. Feel the shock. And then in verses 41 through 42, uh, Jesus acknowledges his coordination with the Father. Okay? He acknowledges that he, he already colluded with the Father beforehand and what was about to happen. This was a work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then verses 43 through 44a. Read this. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. The call of Jesus is a battle cry. It's a victory shout. It's a king's forceful decree. It's by the word of Christ that Lazarus is raised. And here's the deal. The gospel is not just an invitation it's an authoritative summons. It's an authoritative summons. And it's not just a summons. It's a creative word, a non-negotiable word that comes to us. He commands. Lazarus could not have stayed dead if he wanted to. Lazarus could not have raised up a strong will against Jesus that would leave him dead. Jesus didn't need Lazarus's permission. Jesus didn't need the invitation of Lazarus. Jesus speaks the word and it is done. That is the truth of the text. This is on the face of the text. And this is supposed to shape your understanding of how God saves you. 
How does God call you? With authority? With power? He didn't say, Lazarus, I invite you to come out if you're so inclined. (laughs) He said, Lazarus, come out. I'm calling the shots here. And even death can't tell me what to do. Death can't stop me. Death can't slow me down. Death can't keep you down when I call you. And that's good news. Don't be concerned about, about, about what about what if I have a choice? Lazarus wasn't concerned, I assure you, when he came out that tomb. All he said was, thank you. That's all he said. He reveled in it. He rejoiced in it. He didn't resist it. It's a powerful thing. I love how some New Testament commentators, they quip that Jesus called him by name. And if Jesus hadn't called him by name, he would have emptied every tomb in Bethany and Judea. If he had just said, come out. Everybody out. But he specifies him. Jesus didn't raise everyone in Bethany. He said his particular love on a particular man issued a particular call that gave particular life. It's in the text. It's on the face of the text. Plain truth, often hidden in plain sight. Listen, when the gospel is preached, every time the gospel is faithfully preached, there's an external call that goes out. It is an invitation to repent and believe in the good news. But listen, there's another call, another dynamic that happens when the gospel is preached. And in that scenario... What happens is that the preaching of of the word is attended by the powerful ministry of the spirit so that life is imparted. Theologians call this effectual call. Somebody say effectual. Effectual call. That means it cannot but be affected. You can't stop the call of God. You can run, but you can't hide. That's the nature of this call. It's always through the preaching of the gospel. But the spirit imparts life. The spirit gives ears to hear. The spirit does a work of renewal. And Pastor Joel's going to talk about regeneration next week. But right now, we just need to see the initiating call attended by the spirit in the preaching of the word that gives new life. Where God initiates that thing. It's a creative call. It's issued and salvation is initiated. Lazarus is just a picture of the broader biblical teaching of effectual calling. This is God's word and it's all through. Let me give you just a few. Isaiah 55. This is what God says through the prophet. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. God's word shall succeed. And bringing forth the life that he has determined to bring before the foundations of the world. In Galatians chapter 1, we get Paul's 
uh, reflection uh, on, his, on his autobiography, his coming to faith in Acts 9. And this is what he says. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, called me by name, set me apart before my birth. Why does he set you apart before his birth? Because you can be quite sure he wouldn't have found a reason to set you apart after your birth. He does it beforehand. He sets his love on you. He knows what you're going to be about. He knows how you're going to fail. He knows how you're going to be ruined, how you're going to come to earth in a hearse. And he sets his love on you and purposes to send his word out to bring you to life. Paul acknowledges it. Even as he was running, fighting Jesus, when he who set me apart before birth and called me by name, Paul did not stand on the road to Damascus and say, well, wait one minute, Jesus. I have free will. (laughs) He recognized a Lord when he saw one. And that's exactly what the spirit does. He does not coerce you. He takes off the blinders and the sin that impair the God-glorifying use of your reason and your emotions and your trusting. The Spirit opens your eyes to see the glory of Christ. He makes you willing in the day of power. And that's how he calls you. Romans 4.17, when Paul is using Father Abraham, the father of faith, when he's talking about the work of God in Abraham, he say, this is what he says. He, says he, say, he talks about God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's by his powerful word. That's Romans 4.17. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no interruption in the work of God and salvation. It's a, it's a, it's a symphony The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in symphonic relationship in the outworking of salvation. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul Paul talks about God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Peter 2.9, I love this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is effectual calling. We often see creation language used to describe salvation. And one reason for the use of this creation language is to clarify beyond argument that just as creation was called into existence by the word of God without any preconditions or preparation by creatures, so the new creation is called into existence by the powerful word of God without preconditions or any preparations by the creatures. That's what you see in Genesis 1. 
God spoke. And there was. If that was the case for the first creation, what kind of biblical theological argument could we make to say that it's not the case with the new creation? This is exactly what's happening. This is exactly what's being said. What part did light play in its creation? None. What part or preconditions did water or plants fulfill to make way for their creation? None. What preparations did Adam and Eve make for their creation? None. The first creation was not initiated by creatures, and it required no contributions from creatures, and neither does the new creation. That's the point. The only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's all you brought to the table. That's all I brought to the table. So listen, let me me close with this. When you look at your Christian life, when people look at your Christian life and they say, what happened here? The only right response is to say, he did it. If your former residence was a graveyard and your current address is in Christ, then he did it. If the soundtrack of your life has changed from blues to gospel, then he did it. If you look at the final destination on your boarding pass and it says wedding party rather than funeral, it's because he did it. If you look at calling, he did it. If you look at your renewal, he did it. If you look at your righteous standing in God, he did it. If you're looking at your adoption into the family of God, he did it. If you're looking at your hope of glory and the fact that God will finish the job, you will be able to look back over all of it and say, he did it. That's right. That is the truth of the scripture because God is intent on securing this one reality that no flesh would boast before him unless they are boasting in the Lord. And that everything that is accomplished and applied in our salvation would be to the praise of his glorious grace. So that God alone would get the glory. Some practical applications off of this. Here we go. Whenever you share the gospel, you can share the gospel with confidence. Because it's not based upon how persuasive or intellectually gifted you are. It's not based upon how persuasive you are. It's not based upon how well read you are or how impressive you are. When the word is faithfully extended, all it takes is the touch of the spirit to call people to himself. So you can share the gospel freely without pressure and without fear. Because God calls. Second, don't ever count anybody out. Don't you ever count anybody out. And if you're ever tempted to count people out, look at exhibit A, your pastor who should not be standing up here in this pulpit because I was a fool doing everything I could to kill myself. And the only explanation that I could come up with for why God set his love on me and called me is because he felt like it. 
Not because he found anything in me that was worthy or attractive or promising. There was nothing promising about me. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive. Don't count anybody out. No matter how much of a difficult case they may seem to be, I love how we used to say back in the black church that, that Jesus is a doctor who's never lost a patient. He's, he's a lawyer who's, who's never lost a case. That's who he is. That's how he works. Third, you need to really protect a high view of the preaching of the gospel. You need to protect that in your heart and never allow yourself to diminish it. Never allow yourself to diminish the importance of placing yourself under the preaching of the word. Because it is only the preaching of the word enacted by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people that brings new life and sustains transforming life. Okay? So those are three things I want you to, to walk away with. How you deal with the gospel matters. And remember, it's not to us but to God belongs the glory in his calling and in his effective call to bring us out of the grave. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you called us out of the grave and we didn't have to prepare ourselves. There were no preconditions. It was through your powerful word that you imparted life. Let us never forget it. Let us always glory in our Redeemer. Let us always give the glory to you, Lord, for you alone deserve it. We pray that you would encourage us today that we are deeply loved and there is nothing that can dislodge us from your love. It's good news to know that we are secure in union with Christ because the same God who saw down the road and set his love on us and called us by name is the God who continues in patience with us to transform us from one degree of glory to the next. So, Lord, continue that work in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.